Well, we continue in Philippians, and if you just um, get to, to chapter 2, Philippians chapter 2, and uh, we're, we're just going to start off by reading the first four verses. I, I don't expect us to get beyond the first four verses tonight. Right, okay, so, Paul says, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any incentive of love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfishness or conceit, but in humility count others as better than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests. <clears throat> now, the first thing to say is that the fact that we're now starting in chapter 2, verse 1, okay, uh, would normally, most people think, all oh, right, you know, kind of this is, we finished chapter 1 last week, so now, obviously, because it's chapter 2, Paul's going on to something else now. Now, the thing to realise is that chapters and verses were put in the Bible only a few hundred years ago. And it's very important to realise <coughs> that if you really want to understand the Bible, you've got to, I mean, chapters and verses are helpful for finding things, but they can really get in the way of understanding what the Bible is actually saying. Because the point is that last week, and of course I, you know, you will all remember everything we said about verses 27 to verse 30 in chapter 1. And I know that you'll remember because you were all so attentive last week. Well, those of you who didn't fall asleep were, at any rate. And, and of course you'll remember that what Paul was talking about there was unity. You remember he was saying, by your unity, if you're, if you're really united in the Lord, then you're going to be bold. And we saw how security and therefore boldness comes through a united approach. And, uh, but when we turn into chapter 2 and verse 1, don't think that Paul is changing subjects. He's not. He's still on exactly the same thing. And Paul doesn't change his thinking until down in chapter 2, verse 19. So in actual fact, from chapter 1, verse 27, right down to chapter 2 and verse 19, that is all one train of thought that Paul is talking about. And it's all to do with unity, what it means to be a Christian in relationship to each other. And uh, also with these verses, uh, just four verses, I mean, we've just read them, haven't we? And yeah, if there's any encouragement in Christ, any incentive of love, any partition in the Spirit, oh yeah, that sounds nice, doesn't it? Uh, this is a classic example, or you're going to see tonight a classic example that's possible to read the Bible and, and even to read a very faithful translation of the Greek in some ways, and to not get a hundredth of what it's actually saying. Uh, a classic example of how you can skip through four verses and, and, and really not get what Paul was actually getting at himself in the Greek. And that is what we're going to be doing tonight. These four verses are absolutely amazing. But if you don't really get into them, they're kind of neither here nor there. But when you do get into them and really understand what Paul's saying, they are incredible. And what Paul is doing here is that he now begins, having introduced in chapter 1, verse 27, right, the whole thing about unity, what he's now going to do is he's going to start uh, saying to this church, remember what Jesus is like. And what he's going to do is that he's going to remind them of what Jesus is like and then given that Jesus is living in them, therefore what they ought to be like. And so Paul is beginning to draw out certain things about Jesus 
purely to say he's your example and because he's in you, this is how you all ought to be in regards to each other, all right? Now, the key to this is, look, he says, so if there is any encouragement in Christ, any encouragement in Christ, any incentive of love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy. And what he's saying is, if there's any of this in Christ, all right? So, in verse 1, there are certain things that Paul is reminding them. He's saying, look, this is what you've got in Jesus. This is what you've got in Christ. This is what you've got, because this is what Jesus is like, and you've got Jesus. All right. Now, let's actually go through it, part, you know, each part. He says, so, if there is any encouragement in Christ. Now, what is the encouragement we have in Christ, all right? Well, in order to really understand it, we've got to go into the Greek words, okay? And so this is what we're going to start doing. So plenty of Greek tonight, okay? But don't let that put you off. I can't pronounce it either, all right? Now then, the first one, encourage, he says this is the first thing that you've got in Jesus. You've got his encouragement. Now, this word translated here, encouragement, and with this list of words, if you've got various you know, different translations, you're all going to find different words used. But it doesn't matter, because I'm going to go back to the Greek, all right? Okay, now this word, encouragement, is paraklesis, all right? Now this word, paraklesis, it comes, you usually find that most Greek words are compounded words, all right? They're, they're different other words put together, all right? Now then, paraklesis. Now this comes firstly from para, which means besides, all right? Or next to. And kaleo, which is the Greek verb to call. And it literally means a calling to one's side. So Paul says, all right, that in Jesus, one of the things you've got is encouragement. You've got a calling to one's side. What on earth is he talking about? The noun form of this verb is parakletos. Now, interestingly enough, in John's Gospel, Jesus does quite a bit of teaching about the Holy Spirit. And one of the things that he calls the Holy Spirit is that he says that the Holy Spirit is your comforter, your comforter. Now that Greek word comforter is parakletos. When Jesus calls the Holy Spirit your comforter, that is the same, that is the noun form of the verb that Paul uses here when he's talking about encouragement. And what you've got here is the idea of someone who stands alongside you in order to support you and give you all the help you need. That's what the actual verb means. It means someone who comes alongside of you in order to support you and give you all the help that you need. Now, interestingly enough, this is a Greek legal term. I mean, the word was more than a Greek legal term, you know, but for legal terminology, you've got to use existing terminology, all right? And the Greeks, all right, they use this word for a legal assistant or a counsel for the defense or an advocate i.e. the idea is that if you go into court, it's fight where you've got someone on your side, isn't it? And he's your defence lawyer, your defence attorney, a barrister, or whatever. That is the Greek word here. Or an advocate, to give it its real, uh, you know, proper term. Just go to 1 John. 1 John. And uh, in chapter 2, verse 1, let me just say, any verse I turn you to, I will read out loud. So if you get lost, 
just forget about trying to find it, I'll read it to you, all right? Um, and John says this, my little children, I am writing this to you, struck me, why do you call them my little children? That's probably because he was an elder. <laughs> it makes you feel like that. So, no, he says, my little children, I am writing this to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Now there you have exactly the same Greek word, parakletos. Jesus is our advocate. So when Paul is writing to them and he's saying, look, in Jesus you have encouragement, you have paraclesis, he's putting across the idea that Jesus is our advocate. He is our defense lawyer. Or Jesus is always alongside us, representing us in whatever way we need. And remember, the worst thing we can ever do and the thing that brings us more problems than anything else is that we sin. Is that we sin. And those verses in 1 John prior to that is all about confession of sin. Alright. And of course the point is that when we have sinned, which is the worst thing we can do, if we confess, then Jesus is there as our advocate, he's there as our counsel, uh, he's our defence lawyer, okay? And uh, he's there mopping up the mess and clearing away that sin so that we've got a complete clear slate. One aspect, but the most important aspect of the fact that Jesus stands alongside us, helping us in any way that we need. And you see, even our sin and failure, this is the glorious thing about this, even our sin and failure, and we've all got plenty of that, need not be a source of discouragement for us provided that through confession, i.e. coming clean, we bring Jesus in on it as our advocate. Now, in confession, what happens is when you've sinned and you're in a mess, when you confess that to the Lord, then Jesus can come in as your advocate and he can start mopping up the mess that that sin has created and give you a clear, you know, a clean slate. And so here, when Paul is saying, look, if you've got any paraclesis in Christ, the RSV translators, they decided encouragement. That's the word to put there. So Paul says, look, this is the encouragement that you can draw. And the encouragement is this. No matter what, and under every and all circumstances, Jesus is alongside us as one who is there to help us to clear up our messes, to represent us in any way that we need, uh, to, to lead us through all the technical complexities of life. Because remember, when you're in court, there's a load of complexity that you don't know. That's why you've got a defence lawyer. He understands it. And he's there. He knows more than you. He's there to guard you from all the traps. You know, everything that can go wrong. It's his responsibility to lead you through the complexity of what's going on. So the idea of a defence lawyer is that in court it's made simple for you because someone else is worrying about all the legal stuff. Now in exactly the same way, although life is very complex, following Jesus is very simple. And it's for this reason. If we were to only realise that Jesus is the one who's responsible for dealing with all the complexities of our lives, can you see? 
We're only responsible for what we do understand. Now, much of life I find I don't understand. Most of the time, I ain't got a clue what's going on. But then, that shouldn't surprise us, all right? Because God does. And if we trust him, if we trust Jesus. So all those times when you think, what on earth is going on? I don't know what the Lord's up to. I don't understand. We're, we know we're worrying, maybe we're fretting, maybe getting a little bit frightened. All right. This is a failure on our part to realise, one, what faith is, trusting God. Not trusting God when you know what he's up to, but trusting God full stop. All right. And the fact that God is quite capable, far more capable than us, is, is cleverer than us, he understands more than us, and he's quite capable of dealing with whatever complexities are going on that we don't understand. And so the encouragement that Paul is reminding them of here, he's saying, look, Jesus is your advocate. He's standing alongside, he's your legal counsel, he's your representative. And of course the point is, when Paul's writing to the Philippians, they understood all this. You know, the words that Paul was using spoke volumes to them. They didn't need Paul to, you know, and by this word, in actual fact, what I mean is legal counsel, blah, 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 because it was inherent in language. And the reason we need Bible teachers is because it's their job to get the original language. You've got to remember that, that the Bible or the Word of God is inspired and infallible. It is absolutely infallible as originally given. This book isn't infallible. The books that you've got on your laps aren't infallible. They are not technically the Word of God. The Word of God is infallible as originally given in the original languages. So the point is that translators, and I mean it's not possible for them to do it 100% perfectly, of course it's not. But the point is, it's only as you get into the original language, understanding the original situations that the letters are addressed to, that you really do understand what Paul was saying. So everything I've said, alright, to bring out that word, was inherent in the word for the people that Paul was writing to. It's just reminding them, look, Jesus is on it. Be encouraged by that. Don't be discouraged by things you don't understand, what's going on. None of your business. If the Lord wanted you to understand whatever it is at the moment you don't understand, you'd understand it. Do you see what I mean? If he wanted us to know everything, he'd tell us everything, but he doesn't. But the reason he doesn't isn't because he doesn't want to, it's because we're not clever enough to hold it. Do you see what I mean? We can only hold a limited amount of info. So most of my life I don't understand. And most of your lives, well, <laughs> where do you start? <laughs> Don't even understand myself. How am I supposed to understand other people? But the point is, Jesus does. And we can share in his understanding of each other and therefore help each other. But the point is, when we don't know what's going on, it doesn't matter because Jesus does know what's going on. And he's in charge. He's in control of it. And faith, if you've got a faith that when you don't know what's going on, you start panicking, you haven't actually got faith. I mean, the way that... I use to kind of like describe this, what is true faith? I mean, faith is trusting someone. Now, if you've got a husband and wife, if a husband says, I, I, re I really have faith in my wife, I, re I, I know she's, I really trust her, I've got absolute faith in her when I know where she is. <laughs> now, you see, the point is, my faith in Belinda as my wife, and indeed her faith in, my, in me, but my faith in her, does not come into play when I can see her. Doesn't come into play when I can see her. Faith in Belinda only comes into play when I can't see her 
and she might be letting me down. See? Now, therefore, if we only trust God when we know what's going on, that's another way of saying we don't actually trust Him. We don't actually trust Him. And isn't it strange that, that our, our sinful hearts, our sinful hearts, why are we so much happier when we actually understand what God's doing? Why do we feel more secure when we can see the outcome? What I'll tell you is because it gives us this sense that because we can see what God's doing, it gives us this feeling that we're somehow in control. All right. You know, God's being a good boy. You know, this strange idea, if we can see what he's doing, it makes us feel more secure. That feeling of security is coming not from faith. That feeling of security is our sinful hearts liking to feel in control. And the reason, the reason that our heart... Because think about it, the idea of trusting God implicitly is the most logical thing you can do. I mean, you're a wally not to, aren't you? Logically, look at it, logically. So why do we find it so hard? Well, I'll tell you. Because to trust the Lord is to hand over everything and leave it in his hands and you are no longer in control. That's the point. That's the point. Genuine submission and faith loses control to Jesus. But our hearts want to be in control. You know, we're number one. We want to control our own lives. We want to set all the parameters. We don't want to take any risks. We want everything tickety-boo and cosy. All right? Well, true faith says to all that because I'm leaving it to Jesus. And so you can really know if you're growing in faith. Are you more secure than you were, say, last year when you don't know what's going on? Is he? Jesus is onto it. All the things you don't understand about your life, what's going on, where, you know, where am I being led to, and what's going to happen about this problem, what's going to happen about that situation. If you're feeling more secure in that, then you're growing in faith. If you're still tearing your hair out, then something at a deeper level needs to happen inside of you. That tearing your hair out, okay, it's not genuine worry, alright, it's your sinful heart's attempt to try and stay in control. Now only arrogance of the utter degree would seek to control God, isn't it? Genuine faith casts itself upon him and says, you do it, I can't, I leave it all up to you. So Paul says, be encouraged, be encouraged. Discouraged Christians all the time, oh, I'm discouraged, I'm discouraged, blah, blah, blah. That's unbelief, that's unbelief. But people who have learned to trust the Lord in the dark, it's easy to trust the Lord in the light, but when you've learned to trust him in the dark, well, my goodness, then those people, they are more encouraged. They get discouraged here and there, but I mean, they're not kind of all the time, oh, I'm so discouraged, I'm so in despair. They bounce back real fast. And that's the kind of faith that Paul's saying, look, it should be like that for you because this is the encouragement that you've got in Jesus. So he says, right, Jesus, he's your defence lawyer, he's your buddy, he's right there. He'll never leave you nor forsake you. He's standing at your side to be your helper, your representative, uh, your mess cleaner-upper, you know, your char lady. Jesus isn't too proud to be our char lady. What does a char lady do? I've blinged you to be a char lady. What do you do? <laughs> what does a char lady do? She goes in and clears up other people's messes. Well, there you have the humility of Jesus. <coughs> Jesus has come to clear up our mess. You know, so, so don't take it irreverently when I liken Jesus to a child lady, but do you get the point? Jesus is there for just that, to clear up our mess afterwards. So Paul says, right. Oh, domestic help, is it? Sorry. Or is it domestic scientist or hygiene technician or something? 
There you are, the laws of hygiene technician, no problem. Right, okay, so Paul says that's the first thing. Now, secondly, the second thing he's reminding them that they've got in Jesus is any incentive of love. Incentive of love. Now, if you take those three words, incentive of love, I mean, quite frankly, they could mean anything to anyone, couldn't they? I mean, ten different people could put ten different meanings on them. So what is it in the Greek? Well, let's take each one at a time. First of all, incentive. Incentive. This word incentive is paramuthean. Now, again, it comes from two Greek words. Para, which means besides or near. We've already seen that in paraklesis, haven't we? All right? Para and muthos, which is the Greek noun for speech, to speech. And this word, here translated incentive, paramuthean, literally means to draw near to speak. That's what it means, to draw near to speak. But the idea that it has within it it denotes tender words of comfort spoken by one who loves you. Now, that, that is the feeling of this Greek word. You know, it's not sort of like, um, you know, sort of drawing near to, you know, what do you think you're doing? You're making a mess. I mean, you can draw near to talk to someone like that, can't you? No, this word, it's, it's, it's the drawing near to speak tenderly to someone because you love them the tenderness of understanding, the tenderness of sympathy, or whatever. Now, that's, that's what Paul is saying. Incentive, okay, of love, love, agape. In the Greek, loads of different words for love. We just got one, all right? In the Greek, loads of different words for love. And this one is agape. And the distinctive thing about agape is that the early church, what they did is they grabbed that Greek word, which, which meant selfless love, all right, the Greeks didn't use it much because they didn't know anyone who had selfless love, you see. So it was a word that had gone astray. It was there. It was there in the language, and it represented the highest ideal of selfless love, blah, blah, blah. And what the early church did, yeah, because the Holy Spirit led them to do it, and because it was God who arranged for the Greek language anyway, all right, they grabbed onto that, and they used that word exclusively of the love of God himself. So that word is not used uh, of family love. Uh, it's not used of uh, love between husband and wife. Uh, it's not used as, uh, I, I love my dog, or, you know, or something like that. It's used in the Bible <coughs> only to represent and to speak of the utterly selfless love of God himself, because he is the only one who loves selflessly. No one else can. And so when Paul says, look, remember what you have in Jesus, you have the incentive of love. He says, this, this, is what Jesus' relationship with you all actually is. It's from his side, his love for you shows itself in the drawing near to you and speaking to you out of tenderness. Now, Paul's reminding them that that is the one aspect of the love that Jesus had for them. From Jesus' side, all right, the way he feels about us is that his heart for each one of us is that of someone who wants to be able to draw near to us and speak out of the tenderness of absolute love, concerned only with how he can help us, alright? 
Now, also, we've seen this before in past teaching, that the Greek, I mean, obviously a lot in the Bible about worshipping God. In the New Testament, the Greek word used for worship is proskunio. And again, it comes from two different Greek words, pros, which means to approach, and kunio, which is the verb to kiss. The Greek word for worship is to approach in order to kiss. Now, worship is the highest point of our relationship with the Lord. And the symbolism, the picture, that the New Testament uses to best describe that is that it uses the language and the analogy of lovers. That is the tenderness of Jesus' love for us. So that when God, through the Bible, wanted to communicate his love for us in the way that could, using human pictures, best describe it, the closest that God could get is the relationship between a man and a woman who are deeply in love with each other. The tenderness of man and wife. Alright? Now that, that is the love that Jesus has for us. And when Paul says, you know, look, this incentive of love, paramuthian of love, he's reminding them that that, that, that is the way Jesus feels about us. Obviously, his relationship to us is not the love of a lover, but in order to get across its tenderness, that is the picture that the Bible uses. Now, that is what we have in Jesus. That is Jesus' heart for us. In him, we have paramuthian and of agape. We have the tenderness and we have the comfort of his utter love for each one of us. A love that when the Bible tries to get across its tenderness and its closeness, the best analogy is the love between a man and a woman. Now that is Jesus' heart for us. That is what Jesus feels towards each one of us. And so Paul reminds them, you have that in Jesus as well. And then thirdly, he says, any participation in the Spirit. Participation in the Spirit. Now this word, participation, koinonia, our old friend koinonia, the Greek word for fellowship. Everyone knows that, alright. But what sadly isn't emphasised, I've never heard it emphasised, in regards to this word, is that koinonia means sharing. But it means more than that. We've done this before. In the Greek word koinonia, it means sharing, but the emphasis, the emphasis is not what you get out of that sharing. The emphasis is on what you are putting into that sharing. So if you had two people chucking money into the pot to share, koinonia is the word. But it refers not to the money that you take out of the pot, it refers to what you're putting into the pot. So, if I'm to say, biblically, I'm having fellowship with you, then the biblical meaning, the Greek meaning, is not that I am at that moment receiving anything from you. I'm having fellowship with you when I am giving to you. You see? Now, there'll be a time for me to receive, but when I do, that's you having fellowship with me. 
That is what the Greek word actually meaning. Koinonia, fellowship, is sharing, but it's what you are putting into that sharing. The emphasis isn't on what you are actually getting out of that sharing. And here, Paul's not talking about our relationship with each other. Here, he's talking about what we have in Jesus. Here, Paul is reminding them, not of their relationship with each other, he's going to come on to that. Here, he's talking about the relationship that Jesus has with us. Paul is here talking about the relationship that Jesus has with each one of us personally, to the extent that we will actually allow him to have it. And this third thing, this participation, this fellowship in the Spirit, all right, is that Jesus wants, because of the way he feels about us, this tenderness of love, he wants to give, 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 give. When Jesus looks at us, he's not concerning himself with what he wants out of us. Because of his love for us, he wants to give to us. Jesus isn't in this for himself. Jesus isn't in this because he wants anything out of it. Jesus is here to give. And what Jesus wants is to totally give himself to us. Jesus is giving and giving and giving is that he's given us himself. He is totally and 100% available for us at any time. At any time. And his concern is not his well-being. His concern is only, only our well-being. And indeed, the reason that Jesus will be so tough with us, and he will, big brother can be tough, and Jesus is big brother. The only reason he can be so tough with us is because he knows that nothing does us more damage than our sin. One of the things that I eventually realized was that no one, nothing, had ever damaged me more than my own sin. Quite a realization. But yeah, I have caused myself far more harm than anyone else has. And there have been people who have tried to do me harm. But those who have done their best they haven't done me half the harm I've done myself over the years. Sin hurts us. Sin destroys us. Sin prevents us being who Jesus wants us to be. And the reason that Jesus is so determined to sort us out is because our greatest enemy is us. If you got into a big rally and you said, hey, who's your worst enemy? You know, all the, you know, sort of like the robots, the kind of robot, Satan, mm-mm. It's not. It's not. Satan's not our worst enemy. I know who my worst enemy is. He's a killer. His name's Beresford. You watch him. I am my own worst enemy. You are your own worst enemy. Not Satan. Forget Satan. Oh, some people, the devil, the devil, the devil. Forget the devil. We are our own worst enemies. The enemy is not Satan, it's our sin. And that is why Jesus is so determined to be tough with us. And when Satan gets a foothold, how does he do it? Through our sin. The problem is never Satan. The problem is our sin that let him in. I mean, you don't land a Boeing 757 anywhere where there's not a runway. 
And Satan can do nothing except through the runway that we provide him. If we don't give him a runway, he can't do a thing. The enemy is not the devil. The enemy is not demons. We are our own worst enemy. It's our sinful hearts. And that is why Jesus, because he loves us so tenderly, because he loves us in this way, because he only wants what's best for us, that is why he is willing to be tough with us. Because he wants our own well-being. And he knows that nothing can ever hurt me as much as my own sinful heart. And so he's after it, and he wants to deal with it. Right, so Paul says, right, that's, that's, that's the third thing you've got. You've got participation in the Spirit. You've got Jesus totally given to you for your own well-being, all inherent there in the Greek. Right, the fourth, fourth thing he says, affection, any affection. Now, we've done this word, we saw this word, affection, in our first study, chapter 1, verse 18. Do you remember? It's splanknon, it's bowels. Bowels. That's the word here, guts. <laughs> Intestines. You actually get the word spleen from it. Spleen comes from this word, splanknon, you see. And we saw that it's compassion. And that for the Greeks, all right, at this, this point in history in the East, uh, I mean, it's like they, they didn't sort of like, when they wanted to symbolically talk about emotions, because emotions don't actually reside in any particular part of the body. We all know that, and so did they. Now, in the West, symbolically, we, it's a heart, isn't it? And it's all rather hearts and flowers. Now, most Christians like that, all right? They're heart Christians, all right? But the Jews had it right. They saw the seat of deep feelings in the gut. If you feel something, it's going to hit your gut eventually. Can you see, it's so much deeper. It's compassion. It's <coughs> those deep feelings in the pit of your stomach that force you into helping and alleviating whatever the need was that sparked that feeling off in the first place. It's that gut feeling, that, that love, that something that's so deep you can't turn your back on it. It's deep down in the pit of your stomach. It won't go away. It's not sort of, oh, you poor sausage. That's heart. That's heart. Oh, you poor dear. Oh. No. It's in the pit of the stomach. I, I, will, not, I will not allow this to go on. I'm going to help that person. I'm going to go through this with them. Now, that is rather drippily, because the English language is rather drippy, I'm afraid gets translated affection. No, it's guts. It's guts. Now, remember, <coughs> this is Jesus' love for us. We've seen the tenderness of his love. And here we see it's not just tender, but it's at gut level. It's absolute gut level. And Jesus, he's got you and I in the pit of his stomach. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? I mean, the Bible says that we're engraved on the palm of his hands. We certainly are. But he's also got us in the pit of his stomach, by which I mean simply this. Jesus is moved to the depths of his being any time you and I suffer. That is the love, the compassion, the affection that Jesus has for each one of us. And so what Paul's doing here is he's bit by bit in just this you know, we're just on verse 1 here. What he's doing is he's building up a picture step by step to give them a broad sweep of what exactly it is they have in Jesus. He's saying, look, you know, Jesus loves you. This is actually what it means, he says. I'm, I'm building this picture step by step. We've seen firstly, he's already said, Jesus' love is supportive. He's your advocate. He's your defence counsel. He's there. He's supportive. 
we've seen that his love is tender, paramutheon. You know, that's his love as well, the, the, the tenderness of a lover almost. We've seen that his love is totally giving and sharing, koinonia. And now, Paul says, and his love is deep and churning at gut level. His love is like that as well, splanknon. And of course, what, what he's doing here is he's saying to them, look, this is Jesus' love for you. He's reminding them of the way in which Jesus actually loves them. He's saying, this is what you have in Jesus. And then he goes on to another one, to another one. Okay, we've seen uh, encouragement in Christ, incentives of love, participation in the Spirit, affection, and now we get sympathy, sympathy. And this Greek word is oikthermos, all right, and uh, it, it, it means mercies, mercies. Uh, not so much the idea of a judge who has mercy on you, it's not, it's not so much talking about that, you know, judicial mercy, it's talking about more the mercy um, of to have pity on someone. Uh, I mean, it's like the, um, I mean, sort of the story Jesus told about the Good Samaritan, you know, who saw this, this guy beaten up and lying in a pool of blood, you know, uh, and, and the guy took pity on him, he, he helped him. It's all about that, he had mercy on him. Not because the blood done anything, but he just wanted to help him, to have pity on. Now, when we're talking about the fact that to have pity on someone, this isn't the kind of, I pity you, you're disgusting. It's not, it's not that. That, that. that is a totally wrong use of the word pity. Uh, that ought to be, I despise you. Uh, we've, we've seen here before, haven't we, the way that the world uses words. Change the words and you justify yourself. I mean, you know, like, you know, no one says, we're committing adultery. But if you say, we're having an affair, that sounds okay, doesn't it? Change the word and you feel justified. Uh, the Bible doesn't allow us to do that. I mean, here, adultery is adultery. Sin is sin, a spade is a spade. You know, the Bible never gets away from that. But, but, but the world likes to dress these words up. So we don't say, I despise you. We say, I pity you. And, and it's knifing someone, isn't it? You're, you're using the very language of love to hurt someone. That isn't what it's meaning here. This is, this is the pity of, oh, you poor sausage. Come here and let me make you feel better. That... That is the mercies here that this Greek word is, is talking about. It's, it's the sympathy of love. The sympathy of love. Yet another aspect. Love is a many-faceted diamond. Paul's just looking out a few of the facets. Just remind them. He's not going over the whole thing. You can't do that in one verse. <laughs> He's just chucking out, you know, he says, don't forget, you know, this facet, that facet. I just want you to remember exactly the way that God loves you. And here, the sympathy of love, that it's love without harshness. There's no harshness in it. Jesus be tough, but he won't be harsh. I mean, there, there's a time when maybe a man has to be tough with his wife. Or maybe uh, a wife's got to be tough with her kids, or whatever. But the Bible says, husbands, don't be harsh to your wives. There's a difference. There's a difference. We must never be harsh, but there's a time to be tough. Jesus will be tough with us, but he'll never be harsh. There's no harshness in him. There's no condemnation in him. You know, even when we really are in a mess and we've really screwed up bad, when he, you know, there's no finger pointing from Jesus. There's no condemn, guilt, guilt, guilt. You know, you rat. You rat. You dirty rat, you know, there's none of that. He just comes in, he just wants us to repent so he can clear up the mess and make us better again. There is only sympathy 
in Jesus' heart for our sinfulness. Complete sympathy from Jesus. And here Paul is reminding them, doing everything he can, reminding them of just what Jesus is actually like. He's saying to them, look, Jesus, his love for you, this is what you have in Jesus. His relationship to you is this. It's supportive. It's tender. It's giving and it's sharing. It's a love that moves him to the depths of his being over us. And it's a love whereby he is totally and 100% sympathetic towards us. Now that is the love of God. That is how Jesus feels about us. That is what you and I have, whether we believe it or not, in Jesus. Right, now in verse 2, in verse 2, look where he goes now. He says, complete my joy by being of the same mind. Having the same love. Being in full accord and of one mind. And what he does now, he started off, remember, chapter 1, verse 27, he started off by saying, you've got to be one. There's got to be unity between you. Now he's reminded them of what Jesus is like. And now he goes back to saying, right, therefore, because Jesus is like that, therefore you ought to be like this. Now, what we're going to see next week is that he then returns to what Jesus is like. And then what we'll see the week after is he goes back to therefore what they have to be like. This is, this is what Paul's doing in this whole section, all right? But look what he says. He says, complete my joy. Paul wanted maturity in them. He's just reminded them of what Jesus is like. And he's saying, look, if you really want to make me happy, if you really want to make me happy, he says, then, I want you to be like this. I want the likeness of Jesus to be being revealed in you. That is what Paul wanted from the people he led. More than anything else, he wanted to see them grow in the Lord and become more and more like Jesus, so that there will be less and less of them, but more and more of Jesus living through them. Now, look what he says. He says, first of all, he says, be of the same mind. He says, think the same way. He says, right, I've shown you how Jesus thinks about us. He says, now you lot, you've got to think the same way about each other. Just, just, just go over to Romans. Romans chapter 12, where he says, I appeal to you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that you may prove what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Now, half of us growing in the Lord is literally God changing our mind. The whole way we think becomes different. The world thinks, the sinful heart thinks in the opposite way to the way that God thinks. 
And the law wants to be working in us to bring about this transformation so that our minds are renewed. <coughs> that we think more like Jesus does. That our outlook on everything becomes more and more the outlook that Jesus has. That our opinions become more and more the opinions that Jesus has. This is changing your mind. Now we've seen in the past that the word repentance all right, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and repent of your sins. The word repentance in Greek is metanoia, and it means literally to perceive afterwards. It means to change your mind. To change your mind. That is what the word repentance literally means. Now the point is this, all right, this is the way it works. There are two aspects, always two aspects to the process of growing in the Lord. The first aspect is what we have to do. The second aspect is what only God can do. And it works like this. If we're going to be a repentant people, what that means is that when we've sinned, we've got to look at that and be honest, and we've got to change our mind about it. And what we've got to do is judge ourselves, and we're saying, right, when I did that, I thought it was all right. If I didn't think it was all right, I wouldn't have done it, would I? I found some way to justify in my heart to do that thing. Now then, when we're acknowledging that something is sin, we're changing our mind about it. We're saying, right, I might have been prepared to tolerate it when I did it, but now I change my mind against it. I change my mind about it. Now I stand against it. I thought it was all right, but God says it's not all right. I change my mind. God has got to be right. I must be wrong. I change my mind. So repentance begins with a subjective change in you. That you no longer agree with your sinful heart, you're agreeing with God. You're changing your mind about just about everything. But if we do that, it is a beautiful thing. If we change our mind, i.e. change our subjective opinions, in accordance with God's word, then the bit that God does is that he will change our mind as well. But when he changed our mind, that is like changing a car tyre that's, you know, if, if you've had a puncture, you change it by renewing it. You put a new one on. Now, if we keep discarding through agreeing with God our old ideas, blah, 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 then what's going to happen for every bit of our mind that we reject and turn against, we get a little bit of Jesus' mind. Now, this is what it means to be renewed in our minds, that our minds are being replaced by the mind of Jesus, so that we're thinking less and less how we used to and more and more like Jesus thinks. We're changing our mind about us in accordance with what the Bible says, and as we change our minds subjectively, then God will be working on objectively changing our minds. In 1 Corinthians, Paul says, we have the mind of Christ. Well, this repentance, changing your mind about your sins, that is how you bring into effect this mind of Christ that you have. Jesus lives in us, but he can only live through us to the extent that we get out of the way. And therefore, Paul says, look, I want you to be thinking like Jesus. Think the same way. And that is an act of the will. It's got nothing to do with feelings. It is a pure act of the will that anyone can do. There are many, many things, all right, that many things I've had to change my mind about. You know, things that when I got converted, I have very strong opinions about them. I, I had very definite opinions as to what was right and what was wrong. 
And then over, you know, a few years of following the Lord, I keep reading the Bible and I keep finding all these bits where God was wrong. You know, well, I thought well, it was written 2,000 years ago, wasn't it? God's out of date. <laughs> and eventually, through nothing other than an act of the will and a willingness to surrender and swallow my pride, I had to say, no, those bits in the Bible are right. It's me who's wrong. It's a pure act of the will. So Paul says to them, and it's, it's just straight, he says, complete my joy by being of the same mind. Do it, he says. Do it. Don't talk about it. Don't keep praying about it. Do it. There's a time for praying, and there's a time for doing. All right? And often, many Christians, they get stuck. They stagnate. Because they're praying when they ought to be doing. You see? There are many things that the Bible says, we've got to do it. But we say, oh Lord, you've got to do it. No, the Bible says, we've got to do it. The Bible says, put off the sinful nature. Oh Lord, put off my sinful nature. No! Waste of time. You know, you might as well ask the Lord to rain bananas down on everyone. It's, it's, it's an unbiblical thing to pray. And say, Lord, put off my sinful nature. No! The Bible says, you put it off. i got to put it off. Now, when we do that by an act of the will, then the Lord comes in in power, yeah. He actualizes it. We couldn't do it on our own. But we've got to make the first move. So Paul says, right, I've shown you what the love of Jesus is like. Right, now you start to think like him. Boom, boom. And then he says, look, having the same love. Having the same love. But we've already seen that when Paul talks about um, love here, it was specifically agape. It was God's love. And now Paul says, and it's agape again, you have that same love. All right, go to Romans 5. We looked at uh, Romans 5, um, I think the, the, the first study, I think it was. We'll look at it again now. <coughs> he says, therefore, since we are justified by faith, i.e. you're born again, you've accepted Jesus as your saviour, you are justified. Justified, it's justified, never sinned. All right? Now, that, when you were born again, you are forgiven, all right? Through him, we've attained access to the grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in our hope of sharing the glory of God. If you're born again, you've got past salvation, justification. You've got the absolute guarantee that when you die, you're going to get to heaven and be glorified, glorification. All right? But down here, down here, it's purely up to each one of us. All right? No guarantee at all. You can be a sanctified Christian or you can blow it. It won't affect whether you go to heaven or not, but you can blow it, all right, real bad. So now he says, but more than that, more than that, he says, we rejoice in our sufferings. Now then, we've all rejoiced in the fact that Jesus has saved us. Brilliant, brilliant. Never going to go to the lake of fire. That's something to rejoice about, isn't it? We all rejoice we've been baptised with the Spirit. Oh, brilliant, being baptised in the Spirit. You know, oh, kia mashada, blah, you know. Wow, we can rejoice about that. But Paul says more than that, Paul was rejoicing in his sufferings. Have we started rejoicing in the tough times yet? Or are we still moaning about them? And the reason Paul was rejoicing in these tough times, he says, look, knowing that suffering produces endurance. All right? You know, God keeps you waiting. Very important. Just to be kept waiting. Endurance produces character. And here it's sort of, you know, not, not character, you know, he's right, oh, oh wow, what a personality. It's not talking about character there. It's talking about the character of the fruit of the Spirit. 
the development of one's character, not personality, but character in the sense of moral, you know, the way you actually live. And uh, he says, character produces hope, and hope does not disappoint us, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, which has been given to us. So when Paul says, look, have the same love, God has poured his love into our hearts. How can we have that? How can I love you with the love of God? No problem, I got the love of God. Will I let it out though? That's the question. It's not can I, it's will I? And here what Paul is saying, look, he says, right, you're saved, so act saved. And here he says, look, love each other just like Jesus loves you. And it's through tough times that that love is released in our lives. It's through the difficulties. It's not through the easy times. It's through the difficult times. Because it's in the difficult times that you're being cut back. It's in the difficult times that God is dealing with us. That he's getting rid of us. You know, so he says, right, when you were baptised, that was your funeral, wasn't it? Yes, Lord. Wasn't it? Yes, Lord. Wasn't it? Yes, Lord. Well, why won't you lie down? Oh, don't want to. Right, I'll mate you. That is what the tough times are. It's in the tough times that God is killing off our sinful nature. You see what I mean? In the tough times, we're being brought to the end of ourselves. In the easy times, we're so capable, aren't we? Oh, don't, don't trouble yourself, Lord, I can do that. But when you're at the end of your rope, it's the tough times when you grow, not the easy times, you see. And so, in those really hard times, less of us, more of Jesus, and that means the love of God coming through to other people. And he says, and I want you to be of full accord and of one mind. Now, Paul's saying, you've got to be agreed on this. He says, there's got to be, in a church, corporate, <coughs> excuse me, corporate agreement on this. All right? Otherwise, it won't work. Unless a group of Christians who intend to be in fellowship with each other in a significant way, unless they're all agreed on it, it's not going to be any good. It's not actually going to work. To, to work. Now, here's the point. What we've been talking about here, Paul has said, this is what Jesus is like. Now, you have got to be like it. You can be like it. The only question is whether you will be like it. Now, we can't be like it instantly and exhaustively. We grow into it more and more. Of course we do. It's not all or nothing. You know, it's not today totally unsanctified and then tomorrow fully sanctified. No, it's a growing process. But the point is we can significantly be moving in this kind of love, in this kind of life with each other. So Paul has been saying, Okay, this is what Jesus is like, now you have got to be like this. And the fundamental concept to describe it all is this, selfless. Selfless. It's no longer for yourself, it's for Jesus and it's for other people. Now then, here's the question. It's all very well for individuals, because Paul has been talking to them, if you like, as individuals. But now, when he says to them, okay, being in full accord and of one mind, he's now talking to them as a corporate body. And he's saying, it's all very well that individuals among you want to do it. It's all very well that some of you really want to go on with the Lord in this way and let God deal with you 
in such a way that you can go on in the Lord in this way. But he says, everyone has got to be agreed on it. Because if people aren't, then it's just not going to work. All you're going to get is fireworks. Look, if this isn't what you really want, selflessness, God dealing with us, God bringing us to the end of ourselves, putting us, me last, you first, Jesus first. No, Jesus first, you second, but then Jesus, he wants more than anything else for me to put you first anyway. Isn't that confusing? But that's the selflessness of Jesus, you see. Because he doesn't want us to deny ourselves for his benefit. He wants us to deny ourselves for our benefit and your benefit. That's the way it works. So then, if, if that isn't what you want, if you don't want God to deal with you, if you don't want to be brought to the end of yourself, if, if you still want it to be you first, uh, me, 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 then let me tell you, you're in the wrong church. Now, I'm not saying this in any disrespectful way. I'm saying it for your own good. Because if this isn't what you really want in your heart, then you're in for a very rough ride. As, over the years, other people have discovered, who have tried to come to this church, in for a very rough ride. Because you quite simply won't be willing to take what God is doing amongst us. You'll get hurt. You'll be alright when God's really dealing with other people. You'll be okay when God is really working deeply in someone else. But when he, when he turns the spotlight on you, you're going to get the ump, you're going to get all hurt, you're going to get all full of grief, and oh, no one loves me. See? And it's not that no one loves you. It's the fact that that's not what we're here for. We're not here to, to I mean, we are here to be nice to each other, but we're here for far more than that. We're here doing business with God. We're not a little social club, although we have a wonderful time. This is the best social club I've ever been to. And it's precisely because it's not a social club. Is it? What do I need with social clubs? I've got fellowship with a church. What more do you want? But it, if anyone comes into this church and this isn't what they want, that they're here just for the social or just for the attention or something like that, you know, as if... If, if God's merely in the business of meeting needs, I mean, he is in the business of meeting needs. But our greatest need is to be dealt with so that it's no longer us, but Jesus. So if people who don't want to be dealt with try and get in with people who not only do want to be dealt with, but who are being dealt with, oh boy, you're going to end up in the middle where all the sparks are flying. And the sparks fly in this fellowship. The sparks fly in my life because God's dealing with us. You know, how can God refine us as by fire without sparks flying? I mean, who's ever stood next to a furnace? You know, go down falls at Dagenham. Sparks all over the place. Well, if you don't like the heat, don't go into the kitchen. It, it's as simple as that. And that's why Paul says, look, I want you all to be agreed on this. And it's like, if, if there's a time when a church has got kind of like a percentage of people that they're kind of they're kind of expecting it to always be how it's been in the past for them. Maybe in other churches where it's it's all comfy. It's it's all social. It's it's religious. Well, if if a significant number of people who just want that are with a significant number of people who are really going all the way with God and who actually worry about what the Bible says. 
I mean, it's like, it, it's very frequent here to overhear people saying to each other, that's not what the Bible says. <laughs> See? And we've had people who've come here and, you know, they've said the most ridiculous things. And she say, that's not what the Bible says. How dare you talk to me like that? And they take it personally and they get the ump. Oh dear, no. You see, they're not in it for the right thing. I don't know what they're in it for. But they're not in it for going 100% for Jesus. And so Paul says, he says, look, you know, for heaven's sake, make sure, he says, absolutely make sure that you're agreed in regards to this, all right? Now then, in verse 3, he says, do nothing from selfishness or conceit. Selfishness or conceit. Look, he says, do nothing from selfishness and conceit. Goodness, he doesn't say you can do a few things here and there from selfishness and conceit, but not too much. He says, do nothing. That's the standard. Now then, cock-up's quite forgivable. That's the grace of the gospel. Of course cock-ups are forgivable. We all sin. But the standard, what we're aiming for, is do nothing from selfishness and conceit. What does Paul mean by this, from selfishness and conceit? <coughs> this word selfishness, it doesn't really mean selfishness, in one, not, not, not the way that it means in the English. It's erotheia, and it means ambition, self-seeking, or rivalry. Now, do you remember uh, when we were doing uh, chapter 1, we, know, we saw that Paul spoke about the people who were preaching the gospel uh, to try and afflict him further in jail. And he said that they were preaching Christ out of partisanship. That word partisanship is the same word here, erythia. It's partisanship. And in fact, the King James Version translates it as strife. As strife. But it actually comes from a Greek word, erithos, and it means a hireling, a hireling, or a mercenary. Someone who's available for hire, and as long as they get their money, they'll do anything. Can you see? A hireling, okay. Um, and and we've, we've seen, I think, through the years, that sometimes you get people who are mercenary. Mercenary is the word I put on them. They'll stand with any, anyone about anything, as long as there's something in it with them. Can you see? There's no integrity whatsoever. You know, I mean, so these are people that, you know, that there can be someone, and you know you can't, they can't stand them. Wouldn't give them the time of day. But if they've got a gripe, if they think this person who they can't stand has got a gripe as well, they're suddenly best of friends. You see, they're mercenaries. Totally in it for themselves, and they'll deceive people and stuff like that. And it's people who are in it for what they want out of it, and they'll get what they want, be it attention or whatever, at any cost, and thereby they cause factions. And that's the real meaning of the word here, people who cause factions, partisanship. People who will set people against each other if it takes that to get whatever it is that they want. And here we've got troublemakers. This is fundamentally troublemakers. We've dealt with this in the church life series. Here are the Christians that Paul's, well, I mean, Paul's saying, don't be like this. But what he's referring to, here are the Christians who have an axe to grind. Here are the Christians with the bee in their bonnet, all right? They've got a grudge. These are the people, they've got some kind of grudge, and they want their pound of flesh. I mean, examples, it can be one of a million things. For example, some people, some Christians in the church, uh, they think that they're not having enough influence. Uh, they're, they're obvious anointing and talents aren't being sufficiently recognised. 
they're not elders yet. <laughs> you know, uh, we've had a bit of that, haven't we? You know, they, they think they ought to be leaders, and that's their grudge. That's their grudge, you know, and they've got to be in their bonnet about, you know, me, me, me. Uh, some people, they feel they're not getting enough attention. Well, they're getting the same attention as any of the rest of us are getting, but they feel they're not getting enough attention. Uh, or so they might feel. That's, that's the way they feel. Other people, maybe they've, they've been corrected, and they don't like it. Some people are uncorrectable. You correct them, and that's it. They're up in the air. Boom, boom. And so they won't take it, and they kick up a stink in order to justify themselves. This is, this is when Paul says, do nothing from selfishness. This is the kind of people he's talking about, the people with a grudge, who aren't prepared to lay down that grudge, whatever it is. And of course, what happens next, uh, you know, round they start phoning, <laughs> you know, the phones start going, and you know, all the whisperings, and trying to get people on their side, and you know, telling half the story, and stuff like that. And Paul says, look, let there be Nothing of that whatsoever. The whispering campaigners out. Absolute out. Just, just go to Titus. Timothy and Titus. 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy and Titus. And Titus chapter 3, <coughs> verse 10, Paul says, As for a man who is factious, after admonishing him once or twice, give him a couple of warnings, have nothing more to do with them knowing that such a person is convert, perverted and sinful, he's self-condemned. And Paul says, when you've got people like that, and they're causing their trouble, they've got their bee in their bonnet, whatever it is, you talk to them about it, you know, try and help them, but after being told, no, look, this, this can't go on, this has got to stop, once or twice, if the people don't respond to that and they're still doing their troublemaking bit, then they're out. There must be protection against that. Uh, they're self-obsessed people who aren't in the slightest bit concerned about what they can give, what they can contribute, but they're people who are rather angry and bitter that they're not getting enough for themselves. I'm not being loved enough, or I'm not being recognised, whatever, whatever, okay. Paul says, as for that, do nothing from that. Judge that in our hearts. Don't let that come out in the fellowship. So, do nothing from selfishness or conceit. Conceit. Kino doxia. Kino means empty, all right, and doxa means glory. It literally means empty glory, conceit. This is the look at me, everyone syndrome, all right. The, the really self-important people. The, these are the proud ones who won't accept they're proud. We're all proud. I mean, it's no use saying, well, you know, sort of like, stop being proud. I mean, it's our basic condition of our sinful hearts. But there's a difference between someone who's proud and knows it and is seeking God to humble them, and who's humbling themselves, and someone who's proud and won't recognise it. That's a dreadful thing. I used to have a terrible problem with pride once. Oh, it's terrible. You know, then God made me humble. No, it's here, it, it, it's, it's people who are just living out of, that went rather flat, didn't it? Yeah, I did. Um, you know, it's all about people who, who are living out of absolute pride, but they refuse to accept it. They won't judge it in themselves. And they're always trying to put themselves up front. You know, they've always got the right advice, they've always got the answer, and they go around interfering with everyone and, you know, being the authoritative. You know, these are the, the walking oracles of God, these people are. And, you know, it's absolutely hopeless. Um, you know, and Paul's saying, look, do nothing out of conceit. You know, sort of like, he who thinks he stands, take heed lest he falls. I mean, we're nothing special. 
I mean, there's not one person here tonight who's anything special. We're dust. We're dust. We're dust with a pride problem. All right? I've just defined the human race. And if we remember that, that we're dust with a pride problem, that will help to keep us in our place. But when Christians aren't willing to judge that pride in themselves, they're not dust. They think they're something special. They've got a ministry. Oh, oh Lord, save us from Christians with ministries, please. Oh, goodness. You know, how dare we think we're the oracles of God? You know, we're dust with a pride problem. And, uh, but with these people in a fellowship, you know, when they start to rise to the top, they always do, they start to rise to the top. It's like hot air. Rise to the top, all right? And, and then you get the trouble. You know, and, and again, Paul's saying, look, you, you, you can't allow that to be the case. And with these people, if they won't be put in order, then sadly there comes a time to say, well, look, bye-bye, come back when you realise that you're dust with a problem, okay? <laughs> so, speck of dust with an attitude problem, that, that is, you know. But Paul says, our aim, he says, look, do nothing from selfishness or conceit. He said, no, that's not what we're about. If that's what you want, you're in the wrong church, all right? Because in this church... When selfishness and conceit comes out, God's the mighty python foot. And we've always noticed that. He's down on it like a ton of bricks, all right? Whoever it's in, whether it's me, whether it's Robert, whether it's anyone else, God, God won't have that in this fellowship, and neither will we. But he says, rather, <coughs> in humility, count others better than yourselves. Now, you can't go wrong with that, can you? You really can't go wrong with that if in humility you're considering others to be better than yourself. I, you're putting them first. You're putting them first. And the principle about, you know, others, you know, looking at others as being better, you know, than yourself. Um, one thing that helps me in that is sometimes you have to find little gizmos. I need little intellectual gizmos. I mean, I, I just work that way. And mine is, all right, is that precisely because I know myself better than I know anyone else here, all right, you can never know how sinful I am, but I do. And I reckon that if we could get everyone out in the open, if we could all lay bare our sinfulness, I'm not sure there's anyone here who'd be able to top me. Now, can you see what I mean? That's a little, that helps. If we're aware of how sinful we are, you no longer think in terms of being better than someone else. It's an irrelevant comparison. Irrelevant comparison. What Paul is saying, rather, look, put other people first. Put them first. Be aware of your sinfulness. Be aware what you as an individual deserve. The lake of fire. Now, you've had mercy from God. You're getting heaven. Now, that's got to change your attitude to other people, isn't it? Just, just go back to Galatians, Galatians chapter 6, because he, even in correcting people, <coughs> so important, this. Galatians 6, 1 to 3, he says, he says, Brothers, if a man is overtaken in any, any trespass, he says, if a man is overtaken, because women never do anything wrong, <laughs> or, or so they tell me, and I've never had the courage to challenge it. He said, you who are spiritual should restore him, see him, not her, because women are beyond sin, obviously. Um, 
you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Look to yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if someone thinks he is something when he's nothing, he deceives himself. Dust with an attitude problem. Keep remembering it. Write that in your Bible. I am dust with an attitude problem. And that will keep us in our place. And it's like, even when we're correcting people, and we need to correct each other, that's right and proper. But let's not, oh, you rat. Oh, how could you do that, you rat. Let's remember, you know, do it in a spirit of gentleness. And remember, whatever sin they've committed, you be careful, because it might be you doing that tomorrow. That's what Paul says. Guard yourself very carefully. Don't go into all sanctimonious. For heaven's sake, you know, no. Look to yourself, lest you to be tempted, and bear one another's burdens. Bear one another's burdens. That is what Paul is wanting them to, you know, to move into more. He said, look, that is what Jesus is like. You know, I've told you what Jesus is like. This is what you've now got to be like in regards to each other. And in verse 4, he says, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Now, it's important to realise it is not wrong to have our own interests. We have got to look to our own interests. Uh, I mean, the kind of holiness teaching and self-denial teaching that would have you feel guilty for anything that you enjoy, I mean, it's certainly not from the Bible. Certainly not from the Bible. Or it is right to look to our own interests. It is not wrong to think of ourselves at all. When we're saying that the Christian life is thinking of others and not yourself, we're not saying you never think of yourself. That would be stupid. Can you imagine what you would smell like if you never thought of yourself? If the thought, I'd better go and wash, never occurred to you. Can you imagine what you smell like? I mean, of course we've got to think of ourselves. But what Paul is saying here is that you put others first. There's a vast difference between thinking of yourself in a legitimate way and the self-obsession, which is me, 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 I'm number one. And if you're in trouble, well, you don't hesitate to drop by, and if it's convenient, I'll help. It doesn't have to be that. You know, of course we've got our own interests, okay. Uh, it's not wrong to enjoy yourself. It's not wrong to be saving up for you know, that special thing. It's not wrong to save up for a holiday. It's not wrong to save up for a car. But it's when, for instance, in regards to money, our money is only ours. That's when it's wrong. You know, but it, it, it's not a question of sort of like giving, you know, so that no spare, spare penny, you know, it's wrong to... I mean, I'll tell you, I used to pray. I used to pray before I bought a Mars bar. I mean, I was really into bad teaching. This is a long time ago. I felt guilty about even buying a bar of chocolate. You know, I mean, I, I have false teaching up to here. You know, I thank the Lord he's kind of sorted me out in regards. I'm starting to enjoy myself. You know, but, but the important thing is that we're not thinking of ourselves to the exclusion of other people and that kind of we're not thinking of ourselves and only giving other people a tiny little bit. That there's this balance between, obviously we've got to think of ourselves, but it's putting other people first. Uh, and if, if we, I mean, all I can say, and I've proved this again and again and again and again and again, and I'm sure other people have as well, all right. We all have a tendency, or most people have a tendency, that things happen and take your eyes off the law and you get all into yourself. Now, 
Has anyone here ever found happiness in getting all into yourself? Enjoyment? Yes, I quite enjoy self-pity. It's a real problem that God has to deal with, but I'm not happy. You might find someone enjoying their self-pity, but they're not happy. They're not smiling. Now, one of the things I've found so often is the best way to get out of that is to forget about yourself and get stuck into something or someone else. I mean, you, you know, there have been frequent times when I, I've, I've just, <coughs> I would say, I'm at the beginning of a downer. Alright? Now, precisely because God does so much in this church, it can never last for long because the phone will ring or the door will knock. And then I have no choice but forget about me and my downer because I've, I've got other things to think of then. And, and, and then maybe, you know, an hour later I think, oh, oh I feel great. And the pre I felt great because I forgot about myself. I only felt down because I was thinking about myself all the time. That's the way out of depression. That's the way out of downers. Ignore your feelings, get on with life. Get on with serving the Lord. Forget about yourself and you will be so much happier. The unhappiest people are the self-obsessed people. They can't stop thinking about themselves. Every prayer they pray at the prayer evening is something to do with them. Now, I'm not saying it's wrong to ever pray something to do with yourself. Of course it's not. But these people, every prayer they pray is about one of their problems. Or a problem that affects them. Or it's little prayer sermons. Do you know what I mean? The more self-obsessed you are, the unhappier you'll be. The more you forget about yourself, the happier you'll be. Joy. Joy. J-O-Y. Jesus. Others. Yourself. If you want joy, if you want to be happy, the happiest people on earth, as the FGB book says, if that's what you want, I'm not talking about this kind of silly grin all the time. I mean, no one's happy 24 hours a day. Jesus wasn't. Jesus wasn't happy 24 hours a day. He wasn't happy in the Garden of Gethsemane. He wasn't happy when Lazarus died. He wasn't happy when he was tearing into the Pharisees because they were such snakes. But Jesus was a very happy person. So if you want to be happy, Jesus, others and yourself, and then joy, joy will start coming to it. So what Paul has done is he's shown them about the relationship that Jesus has with them individually. And now he's outlining how if Jesus is in them, they ought to be in regards to each other. And what we've got to remember, and I really want to bang this home here, is that your relationship with the Lord is gauged by your relationship with other people. And we must underline that. Your relationship with the Lord is gauged by your relationship with other people. All right. The same with your commitment, the same with your love, the same with your service. Are you serving God? Well, you tell me. Are you serving others? Are you loving God? Well, you tell me. Are you loving others? If I want to find out where you are with God, I'm going to look, or not listen to what you say, I'm going to look at what you do. I'm going to look at how you live. Even forgiveness. Jesus said, look, you know, forgive each other's your sins, or your Heavenly Father will not forgive you your sins. In 1 John, various verses, if you hate your brother and say you love God, you are a liar. You're a liar. You can't love God who you haven't seen if you're not loving your brother who you can see. That's what John says. 
And he says, if you've got love in your heart and you see someone in need and you don't meet their need, you can't say you've got love in your heart. You haven't. Simple as that. And our relationship with Jesus is always going to show where we are with him by where we 